Hello everyone, welcome back to another episode of M's Drive-In. I'm your host Emily, bringing you into the exciting worlds of cinema, with some behind-the-scenes facts and everything you need to know about some of the best artists in the business. Today's episode is all about the amazing history of Disney and Pixar, featuring some of my favorite Disney Pixar films from each decade. I hope you all enjoy and let's get right to it. First up, we have the Disney and Pixar formula for storytelling. According to the article, The Pixar Storytelling Formula, An Inside Look, written by Mary Risk for StudioBinder.com, there are five rules to making Disney Pixar characters memorable. The first rule is all about embracing death and adult themes. Disney itself without Pixar often bases their stories on pre-existing fairy tales, and a lot of these stories are very sugar-coated and grand in a lot of ways that never really seem authentic. Pixar, on the other hand, centers around original stories with deeper themes. Many Pixar films have a certain complexity to their stories, such as understanding death, pursuing a passion despite all odds, experiencing jealousy, moving away, or testing your own strength. And what's really great about all of the themes in these kinds of films is that everyone from all ages can relate to them because they are done in a very kid-friendly and family-friendly manner to the point where everyone is able to really understand and grasp what the themes are trying to convey. Rule number two is work in the gray area. Many Disney characters in many Disney films are either purely good or purely evil. There is never an in-between. It's always either one or the other. But with many Pixar characters, they usually fall in between good and evil. We sometimes agree with some of the things they do and disagree with some of the things they do, but we never fully agree with what they do or fully disagree with what they do. There is always a great balance between what they are trying to figure out, and that's a huge point of a lot of the internal conflicts that these characters go through. Many of these antagonists in these kinds of movies have unlikable qualities that can make them be seen as a quote-unquote villain, but as an audience, we can easily sympathize with why they do what they do and why they are performing these undesirable actions because they oftentimes were wronged in a way or their intentions were misinterpreted. And lots of times within society, these kinds of things happen when we just misinterpret what other people are trying to present themselves as. And a lot of the antagonists in a Pixar film are going through those exact transformations so in a way there's never really a strong desire to completely disagree with what they do because we can understand why they do what they do. Rule number three is give everybody and anybody an arc. What's great about Pixar is that they are very consistent in giving every single one of their characters an arc, even minor characters. And these minor characters often help propel the protagonist's story forward. It's like going by that theater saying that there are no small parts, only small actors. Each character in a film does have a significant impact in adding something to the story no matter what kind of part they have. Rule number four is know your medium. Pixar movies are very consistent with the kind of animation that they portray. With that being said, their movies could not be shot in live action. It's simply not possible simply because of the context of their stories. 
For example, with Toy Story, you have toys coming to life. With Finding Nemo, you have fish losing their memories. With Monsters, Inc., you have monsters that actually exist and interact with human beings. And the thought of portraying these kinds of stories within a live content form just doesn't seem to be real, doesn't seem to be as authentic. It seems like it's going to be much bigger in scope and not feel or look as right to the audience. Another example of this would be that Pixar is very good about dealing with human-centric stories that have these out-of-world set pieces that would be difficult to achieve with a live-action film. For example, the movie Up, you have a house that's floating on balloons from one side of the country to the other side of the country. And the thought of doing something like that with a live-action just wouldn't be right. It wouldn't feel like it would fit within a live form. Another really important aspect about Pixar is that they understand the importance of what the possibility of storytelling can be. They make it very clear that their form of storytelling can only be seen through means of animation. Imagination within an animated story is a lot more vast than live action because you don't have the limitations of what live action can bring. When you're working with animation, yes, there's a lot more technology involved, but you can play around with the technology and you can play around with the drawings. You can play around with the idea of creation a lot more because there's no limits when it comes to that kind of technology and that kind of storytelling. So Pixar is really able to make whatever kind of stories that they want to based off of an animated feel because you can go as big as you want with an animation. The last rule is explaining emotions without quote-unquote lessons. Pixar has always been really great about building complex worlds within the means of animation, and this helps create a really strong emotional response from the audience. A lot of these emotions within a Pixar film often feel a lot more organic and natural. The stories never talk down to the audience, but rather teach the audience about compassion and emotional understanding. And the characters in the stories are really good about inviting the audience in without being too pushy about what the story is trying to convey. The first movie we are going to talk about today is The Incredibles. This movie was written and directed by Brad Bird and is about a family of undercover superheroes who are forced into action to save the world while trying to lead a quiet suburban life. The themes of this movie are authority, conformity, responsibility, and identity. According to the article, The Importance of Theme in The Incredibles, written by Oren Litwin for OrenLitwin.com, the article states, The Incredibles was built from the ground up on the interplay between two strong themes, excellence versus conformity, enforcing authority, and going alone versus one's responsibilities to others. Every incident in the movie plays into these themes. For the excellence versus authority conformity theme, consider the lawsuits forcing supers to retire. This quote leads us into our first theme of authority. When Bob Parr was a superhero, as Mr. Incredible, he felt that he was a part of something important as an authoritative figure who was able to save the world. And he often had a lot of control over who to save and who to defeat. With that being said, he does consider his superhero days as the quote-unquote glory days. 
they represent for him the times in his life when he was at his best. And he felt that he had a sense of purpose as Mr. Incredible. It's a kind of satisfaction where the society came to him when they were in trouble, which made him feel greatly fulfilled in helping his community. And that satisfaction is really what built a lot of his momentum to continue to want to help the public as a superhero. But that also coexists with the theme of conformity. Bob and his wife Helen, who is known as Elastigirl as a superhero, end up having to go undercover when the public begins to sue superheroes for damages due to crime fighting. And Bob ends up taking up a full-time job at an insurance company, which he absolutely hates, while Helen has to stay home and take care of their children. There's this one particular scene in the film where Bob's boss calls him into his office and wonders why Bob ended up helping this woman. And Bob looks out the window and notices somebody getting mugged outside and is like, why aren't we doing something about this? I should be out there helping this person. And Bob's boss literally says, if you take one step outside, you're fired. And it was a great representation of restraint on Bob's part because if he loses this job, his family will have to move again and they'll constantly having to readjust to different lifestyles in society because they can't really be who they truly are. And the people that Bob works for don't support the mentality of helping the underdog. They just want to boost themselves up. From Helen's perspective, she is just trying to be the best mom that she can be, and she's really trying to protect her children, which means that Dash and Violet have to conform to society as well. An example of this is when Dash wants to try out for track. Helen doesn't really encourage this because of Dash's superpowers. He happens to run really, really fast. And it's this easy giveaway, you know? He's always going to be the first one to win and surpass everybody else on the track team. And it's just this really great indicator of how they can't really be who they truly are because they are considered a danger or an inconvenience to society. And that's where the difference between authority and conformity come into play. Authority gives you the power to give orders and make decisions and enforce obedience within a society and within a social structure. And conformity is complying with a set of rules and a set of guidelines and a set of boundaries. And that's the whole point of being superheroes. Superheroes are a representation of authority because they are the ones enforcing the rules as a way to save the world. Whereas everyday people are the ones that follow the rules because they do everyday things. But at the end of the day, the incredible family don't do everyday things. They are not everyday kind of people. And they're trying to figure out which box to put themselves in when they can't really go out and be who they truly are. The article continues to state, but at the same time, the other theme is constantly present. Mr. Incredible embodies the going-it-alone impulse. Elastigirl, meanwhile, represents both the conformity side and the responsibility to others' side. This quote leads us into the theme of responsibility. When we think about the word agency, we think about the action that creates an effect. Helen does give up a lot of her agency and responsibility in order to conform to protect her family. But by doing this, she doesn't really do her kids any favors by teaching them how to hide their identity. And she doesn't do her husband any favors by pretending those superhero days never existed. 
For example, Helen and Bob get into a fight after he said he was going to go bowling with his friend Lucius, who is known as Frozone in the superhero world, when really they were out trying to save a group of people from a burning building. And they get into a huge fight about the idea of Helen wanting to keep Bob safe and Bob wanting to be able to relive the glory days of his time as a superhero because at the end of the day Bob hates conformity and he tries to find exciting and dangerous things to do within society behind Helen's back in order to feel better about where he is at in his life. He doesn't really care about working at an insurance company and he wants his kids to have that same mentality. He wants them to be able to embrace who they are as superheroes. And at the same time, Helen believes that Bob is being incredibly selfish and not looking out for the well-being of his children. So in a lot of ways, Helen does represent a pure kind of conforming because she does have a responsibility to protect her family and a lot of mothers and women throughout history are destined in some way to live that kind of lifestyle. The theme of identity is also another really ever-present theme in this movie. There is a quote in the film where Helen tells Dash that everybody is special, and Dash says that that's the same as saying no one is. And then there's another quote in the film where Syndrome the villain says when everyone is special, no one is. And it's this idea of putting society as a whole into one particular box to the point where they're all following the same type of system. When we think about the word identity, we think about the establishment of who something or someone is. And the Pars, as a family, have established themselves as a quote-unquote normal family, as a quote-unquote normal part of society, when in reality they aren't anything but normal. And they are willing to be able to hide a piece of who they are in order to fit in. An example of this would be when Violet and Dash both express wishes to be normal. They aren't surrounded by other people who also happen to have superpowers or have parents that are superheroes, and it does put a large strain on how they fit into society. And I think Bob's relationship with Syndrome, the villain, is also another really interesting aspect of the film to think about. When we first meet Syndrome, he is a young boy that goes by the name Buddy, and we find out that he looks up to Bob and wants to help him fight the bad guys, and Bob tells him to go home and that he works alone, and he decides very early on as a superhero that he doesn't need anybody. Because of that interaction, Buddy felt so let down by his hero that he grew up to become Syndrome, and he grew up to become a villain that poses as a superhero. And his main goal is to wipe out all superheroes because he felt betrayed by Bob. And it definitely goes back to the idea of how Pixar characters aren't solely good or solely evil. Because Syndrome, yes, he is known as the villain of the film, but you can totally understand and sympathize with why he does what he does. He felt let down, he felt betrayed, he felt a little lost in knowing that the person he looked up to didn't want him in his life. And there is a lot of compassion there, there is a lot of sensitivity there, because I think in some aspects we've all been let down by people in our lives 
as a society in a lot of different ways. It's just the way that he goes about coming to terms with this conflict in his life isn't really the best scenario. But with that being said, if you think about Bob and Helen and Dash and Parr, they often all each feel alone for different reasons as well. Bob likes to work alone so there's no distraction. Helen feels alone when Bob goes off to complete quote-unquote hero work without her. Dash and Violet both feel like they're outsiders from their peers. But at the end, they all end up coming full circle, and they all end up having to defeat Syndrome as a family for the greater good. And that's a huge part of what the ending of this film is about. Helen does come to a certain realization that Bob does need her, even if he thinks that he doesn't need her. And they all come together to defeat Syndrome. And it's a great realization of coming to terms with the fact that people have the power inside of them to save their community if they step up and they work together. But in order to be able to step up and work together as a family, they had to embrace who they were first. And they really had to take a step up in understanding that they had a place and a purpose as a superhero, and they didn't need to really hide who they were after all. Next up, we have the movie Brave. This movie was written by Mark Andrews and Steve Purcell with the story by Brenda Chapman and was directed by Mark Andrews, Steve Purcell, and Brenda Chapman. This movie is about Princess Merida, who is played by Kelly MacDonald, who is determined to make her own path in life, so much so that she defies a custom that brings chaos to her kingdom. Granted one wish, Merida must rely on her bravery and her archery skills to undo a beastly curse. The themes of this movie are mothers and daughters, pride, fate, and destiny. The theme of mothers and daughters is one that is very well-rounded in this film. Merida isn't your typical princess. She isn't interested in running a kingdom or marrying a prince and would rather ride her horse Angus and explore the hills of Scotland. With that being said, her mother Eleanor, who is the queen, expects her daughter to act like a quote-unquote proper princess. She prides herself on teaching Merida the importance of being pure and the importance of being clean as a well-rounded woman in society. And she is incredibly hard on Merida for not responding to her own expectations. The opposing side to this is that Merida feels as if Eleanor doesn't listen to her. She feels like she is being put in a box and isn't really free to express herself the way that she wants to. And in a lot of ways, Merida really doesn't want to be tied down by societal or parental expectations. I think this film does a really fantastic job as far as going against the stereotypes of what you would typically interpret as a pure Disney princess film. When we think of Disney princess movies, it's very easy to think about the girl finding the guy and falling in love. There's a set hero, there's a set villain. We automatically know where the story is going to end up. But Brave is incredibly different and it's incredibly out of the box because it's a Disney princess film that is more about the relationship between mothers and daughters. Most importantly, the expectations that parents can put on their children and learning about their children for who they really are and learning how to embrace their children for who they truly are. 
And with that being said, in a lot of ways, Merida is seen as a true unconventional princess. She is considered to be a princess because she is the daughter of a queen and she is expected to run a kingdom in a more stereotypical kind of way, but she doesn't act the way society would expect a princess to act. She isn't concerned with rules. She isn't concerned with guidelines. She is not concerned with this idea of conformity. She is her own authoritative figure in her own world, and she wishes that her parents and society would appreciate that about her. The theme of pride is another really important aspect to this film because Eleanor is too set in her ways to admit that she is somewhat aware that Merida is unhappy and Merida is too set in her ways to admit how stubborn she can be and because of that they both have trouble listening and understanding each other. When they have arguments about who Merida should be with and who Merida should marry and what Merida should be as a princess, you can see that there are slight pauses in Eleanor's dialogue because she can clearly see how her expectations are affecting her daughter or can somewhat maybe understand how those expectations are affecting her daughter, but she knows what is expected of her as a queen and able to teach her daughter how to be a proper royal in society and prides herself in obtaining those rules and those guidelines. When we think of the theme of fate, we think of the development of events beyond a person's control. And that goes along a lot with how Eleanor is able to dictate Merida's path in life. And Merida eventually feels that if she can change her mom, then she can change her fate. And it's this ability to be able to change her mom's mind. And being able to change her mom's mind means that she won't have to marry or lead a kingdom. Merida ends up receiving a spell from a witch that ends up turning her mother into a bear. And right away, as an audience, it's so easy to think, oh boy, their relationship is just going to get worse because how can a bear and a human understand each other? And there's a lot of really outrageous things that kind of happen within their relationship because Merida's essentially teaching her mother how to be a bear. Eleanor, as a bear at first, still acts like a prim and proper queen. And Merida kind of teaches her how to loosen up a bit and have fun, even if it is as an animal. And that is kind of the beginning of where their relationship heals. But then there's this also really destructive part where we see Eleanor start to really become a bear, not just a human version of a bear. And I think that that puts a lot of perspective into Merida's head of like, oh no, I could really lose my mom and I have to do everything I can to make sure that I keep her in my life. And that's a huge part of the way that their relationship is able to heal. I think that they are really able to connect on a whole different level that they could have never really imagined. And it's a really great way for a mother and a daughter to really come together and bond, especially when you come from a family that does put a lot of these pressures and these expectations on you. It's really important to be able to see those kinds of expectations and those kinds of pressures from both sides. And I think that this film does a really great job of highlighting the ways and the effects that expectations and pressures in society can really 
form, a certain interpretation, or a certain lifestyle. And it's all about what you take away from those kinds of experiences. And by becoming a bear, Merida was able to really understand her mom. And Eleanor was really able to understand Merida's more free-spirited nature. And they both got a really great look into each other's lives in a different way. And that's a huge part of what the ending of this film is about. Merida does realize how much she loves her mom and comes to appreciate how Eleanor was always there for her. And Eleanor also comes to appreciate that Merida can lead a kingdom from the heart rather than strictly leading a kingdom with a man by her side. And they accept each other for what they didn't accept about each other before because they were able to really get to know each other on a totally different playing field. And it's that importance of bonding and connecting with your children and really listening to your loved ones and really being able to listen to what they want and what they aspire to be. And I think that is why Brave is such an exceptional film. Because yes, the film is about a Disney princess, but it doesn't go along with a lot of the stereotypical views that we think of when we think of a pure Disney princess film. It's more about how those expectations of being a princess really affect a person when they're young or when they're really not ready to decide what they want out of life. And I think that it's such an amazing take on this idea of being a royal or being in the public eye or having other people make decisions for you because it's about finding who you are on your own and not being dictated by a society. Last but not least, we have the film Luca. This movie was written by Jesse Andrews and Mike Jones with the story by Enrico Casarosa, Jesse Andrews, and Simon Stephenson and was directed by Enrico Casarosa. This movie is about a young boy named Luca who is played by Jacob Tremblay who experiences an unforgettable summer filled with gelato, pasta, and endless scooter rides. Luca shares these adventures with his newfound best friend Alberto who is played by Jack Dylan Grazer, but all the fun is threatened by a deeply held secret. He is a sea monster from another world just below the water surface. The themes of this movie are acceptance, friendship, and identity. According to the article, Luca, heartwarming Pixar film centered around simple theme of acceptance, written by Amina Pusi for Pelham Examiner. The article states, the theme of the movie centers around the town accepting Luca and Alberto of being sea monsters. However, the message could be interpreted in a different context. Luca has to balance hiding his identity and not letting his fear hold him back from adventuring in the real world. While it is a Pixar movie targeted towards a younger audience, the theme and message behind this movie can be related to a bigger overarching issue. In society, many face a similar struggle as Luca, trying to fit in and discover themselves. This quote leads us into our first theme of acceptance. Many of the people in the little town of Porta Rosa fear sea monsters because of the way they look. It's a quote-unquote kill fish type of town. And that has a lot of representation around how they feel about people who are different. And it becomes very metaphorical throughout the movie. Luca and Alberto will only be accepted in human form because they look like everybody else. When in reality, they are truly sea monsters, but can't exist in the human world as such because of how other people would react. All of that changes when they meet Julia. She immediately invites them into her life because at the end of the day, she too feels like an outsider, even though she isn't a sea monster. All three of them get together, become friends, and they consider themselves the underdogs. 
And I think that it's a great lesson because people can be judged for a number of reasons and it doesn't really matter what the reason is. An example of this is that Julia isn't a sea monster, but she still feels like she is an outcast because she continues to be judged for her quirks. According to the article, Luca director Enrico Casarosa pulls from his childhood with new Pixar film from ComicBeats.com. The article states that Casarosa says, It really made me think about how much we find ourselves within our friendships, or how much friendships help us find a bit of who we want to be. Those days of summer on this wonderful coastline, it's a very specific coastline. It's rocky. There are mountains and sea. Most towns are really hanging on for dear life on the rocks, and then there's a lot of cliffs. So I kept on thinking about the literal and metaphor of someone who pushes you off of a cliff. This quote leads us into our theme of friendship. When we think about the idea of somebody pushing somebody off of a cliff, it's normally engraved in a lot of negative connotation. But when we think about the way that Alberto and Julia help Luca throughout this film, they're really pushing him off of a cliff metaphorically in more of a positive way because they are really able to invite him into a space and nudge him a little bit in ways where he is able to discover parts of himself that are hidden. Luca does have a tendency to listen to the voices in his head, and in a lot of ways he does struggle with a lot of self-confidence, and that's where the quote Silencio Bruno comes in, right? Alberto essentially tells Luca to shut the voices up and just take a chance and go for whatever it is in life that he wants to go for. And Luca does want to learn and he is interested in going to school and he's just eager to learn more about the world and about life in general. And Julia begins to teach him about astronomy and encourages him to go to school with her at the end of the summer. And with that being said, Alberto does become jealous and he does want Luca all to himself in a lot of ways. You know, they have this plan to buy a Vespa and travel the world together. And in a lot of ways, Alberto does become jealous because he is essentially alone in his life. His mom isn't around, his dad left him, and Luca is really the only person that he has a connection with. And he had this dream of being able to travel with his best friend, and it's like Julia being able to take him away is just another person that's going to leave him. And he doesn't really know how to process that. In a lot of ways, Luca showing signs of wanting to live a quote-unquote normal life as a human will wreck a lot of Alberto's plans of wanting to go out and see the world. And it's this idea about how friendships can be threatened just simply by people having different priorities in their life. And that also coexists with the theme of identity as well. Alberto feels that his identity is deeply rooted in how others view him because he just accepts that people see him as a monster because that's all that he feels that he is. And on the other hand, Luca doesn't want to be seen strictly as quote-unquote just a sea monster. He wants to be able to form a new identity that isn't strictly just about being in the sea. He wants to be able to form something else outside of what everybody else has always seen him as. And I think throughout the film we get a really good idea of how Luca and Alberto realize that there are places where they feel truly accepted and appreciated. And I think that as a society and just the world in general, we all want to be in places where we feel truly seen 
and it feels really good to be in those kinds of spaces. And there's a quote that Luca's grandma says near the end of the film where she says, some people, they'll never accept him, but some will. And he seems to know how to find the good ones. And at the end of the day, it's really all about how Luca and Alberto are just trying to find the right people. And it's all about surrounding yourself with the right people. Because the right people in your life will help cement the type of person that you want to be. And that's a huge part of what the ending of this film represents. We have a lot of loose ends that end up being tied together beautifully. Luca ends up going off to school with Julia. Alberto stays with Julia's dad, Massimo, and helps him fish. And in a lot of ways, Massimo is another figure in the film that does become a surrogate father to Alberto. And he becomes that surrogate mentor to Luca. And of course, being a supportive father to Julia. And we see Luca's parents begin to open up at first. You know, they were very hesitant about letting their son go off into the world. But they decide to give him a chance to go after something that he really wants. And it's really all about being able to step out of your comfort zone. And being able to take a risk and knowing that you can explore and discover things and life and experiences outside of what you've always known. And at the end of the day, there are people that are going to help other people accept you for who you are. Moving on to some fun facts. For The Incredibles, Lily Tomlin was considered for the part of Edna Mode, but turned it down when she heard Brad Bird's vocal performance saying, What do you need me for? You got it already. In order to give Dash a realistic, out-of-breath voice, Brad Bird made Spencer Fox run laps around the studio. This film is the only Pixar film to be written by one person. Brad Bird drove his teams hard to be as creative as possible, insisting on greater attention to details and characters than any other previous Pixar production. The team responded by pumping the film full of references and in-jokes, one of the most noticeable being the villain syndrome being modeled on Bird. For Brave, this is the first Pixar movie set entirely in the historic past. Merida is the first Disney princess to not have a love interest and the first Disney princess to have brothers. Merida is the first Disney princess to not be based on any pre-existing literary character or historical figure. One out of two films that Kelly MacDonald and Emma Thompson, who plays Eleanor, have starred in together, the other being Nanny McPhee. For Luca, the favorite pasta dish in Julia's house is Trinite al Pesto. It's the flag dish of Genoa, the city where director Enrico Casarosa is from. Out of all the characters in the film, Luca has the largest eyes, proportional to his head, since he is so curious and eager to take everything in. Marcello Mastriani appears twice in the film. His photo is stuck on Alberto and Luca's makeshift Vespa, and a clip from the film Big Deal on Madonna Street, which he starred in, can be glimpsed on a TV in a neighbor's house when Julia and Luca are walking on the roofs of Porto Rosso. His daughter, Chiara Mastriani, gives the voice of Luca's mother in the French-dubbed version of this film. A movie poster for the late Federico Fellini's La Strada is shown in the town of Porto Rosa, which was released in 1954. In a later scene, a movie poster for the film Creature from the Black Lagoon is shown, further cementing the fact that this film is set in 1954. Now moving on to some movie recommendations. First up, we have Susan Hayward in My Foolish Heart. This movie was released in 1949, and she stars in this film with the great Dana Andrews. And this film was honestly really, really heartbreaking. 
their love story is incredibly fractured because Dana Andrews plays a soldier who has to constantly go away for the war and Susan has to stay home and wait for him. And there's a lot of tragedy and complexity within their relationship that makes this film so gut-wrenching. But it's so humbling being able to watch these kinds of films too because it shows that being in relationships and being romantically involved with people can be a very complicated and complex experience. And I think that this film did a really great job of highlighting those kinds of complexities. Next up, we have the film Tulsa. This is a movie that was also released in 1949 that Susan Hayward starred in with Robert Preston. It's a Western, but it feels more like an unconventional Western because Susan plays a woman that is able to take the reins and create this huge oil rig in Oklahoma. And she is really the one that wears the pants in the relationship with Robert Preston. And then Robert Preston plays a character who is romantically involved with Susan Hayward's character. But there's a lot of pushback and a lot of back and forth because they both want the control over this oil rig. And by the end of the film, it all comes to a head and they kind of have to learn to give up a lot of their control. And it's a really great way of highlighting the power that women can have over men and how men can somewhat feel emasculated by that power in a lot of ways too. And I thought it was a really interesting take, especially for a late 40s, early 50s film where around that time women were expected to be housewives and mothers. It was great to be able to see a movie where the woman was really able to take the reins and be in control of a really graphic or somewhat graphic situation. Next up, we have James Garner and Jack Lemmon in the film My Fellow Americans. This movie is a hardcore comfort film. I honestly don't remember the last time I laughed so hard from beginning to end of a movie. The comedy just had a really great, sarcastic, witty nature to it. And I think that Garner and Lemon bounced off of each other incredibly well. And it just had a lot of really funny one-liners, a lot of really great chemistry that didn't take itself so seriously but wasn't overly funny to the point of just being ridiculous. It had just exactly what a kind of comedy film needed which is just, at least for my personal taste in comedy, it would just be this really great, blunt, sarcastic energy that had a really great chemistry to it as well. And it was a film that I really, really enjoyed. Last but not least, we have Jack Lemmon and Walter Matthau in Grumpier Old Men. This is the sequel to Grumpy Old Men. And it was such a really great way to end this kind of sequel of events with these two grumpy men. I mean, it was just another really fun great film that again didn't really take itself so seriously it's just one of those films where you can easily just kick back relax have fun with it and again Lemon and Matthew of course have amazing chemistry together so to see them in a film together is always just such a joy to watch as our time together comes to an end I just want to thank everyone for tuning in to M's Drive-In I'm your host Emily bringing you into the exciting world of cinema with some behind-the-scenes facts and everything you need to know about some of the best artists in the business. Keep an eye out for our next episode on the amazing legacy of the Redgrave family.